0: Hello, New Covenant Baptist Church. It is an honor, and I mean this, it's an honor to be with you. Um, I want to bring you greetings on behalf of Covenant Life Church. Uh, I also have a confession to make if you promise you won't tell my church. I'm a closet Baptist. (laughs) Um, I grew up in a Baptist church, I came to faith in a Baptist church. The Lord nurtured my sense of calling to ministry in a Baptist church. I went to a Baptist college. It has been a joy to cheer you on as New Covenant Baptist and to get to know Pastor James over the last few years. And between me and you, I'm not convinced he's not a closet charismatic. Um, If you catch him praying in tongues, you can report him to me immediately. 301-869-2800. I'd be glad to take him off your hands. Uh, I love this brother. Uh, You know he gets a little excited over there every now and then, you can tell. Um, no, we we have prayed for you as a congregation. We prayed for you this morning, publicly and privately, uh, especially you know, recently as you've processed the news of your uh, relocation. Uh, it reminds me, uh, I wasn't around for this, but I've heard the stories about the planting of the church I now serve uh, right here in Durwood in 1977. I'm told that if you missed a Sunday, you were guaranteed to miss two because every Sunday they were announcing the new location they would be at the following week, right? Um, That's coming up on 50 years ago. Uh, And by the grace of God, Covenant Life is going strong. It's been in the same location for 25 years or so now. I trust that's the future the Lord has in store and all the more uh, for New Covenant Baptists. But uh, I've benefited already from your ministry. The church blessed me with a sabbatical this past summer. And my family and I actually came here and worshiped with you uh, one Sunday. So we, I'm sure, uh, about 10 regular attenders did not have a place to sit because me and my family took over that back row and uh, just had a joy being with you. Uh, To that end of your growth and stability in the Lord, I want to look together with you at Psalm 90. Uh, Now, I know you are a church that's familiar with the Psalms. Uh, When I was here over the summer, you were in a series in the book of Psalms. Uh, But I want to turn our attention there because, uh, as I'm sure you know, the Psalms are a collection of songs and prayers that serve like A roadmap for our relationship with God. The Psalms show us how to engage God in the midst of all kinds of life experiences. And if you think about it, in that, the Psalms are a remarkable expression of the compassion of God. The fact that He would include these kinds of prayers in His Word. I don't know about you, but if I was writing a book about myself and I was going to include the way people corresponded and interacted with me, I would not include complaints. Uh, I wouldn't include the times when they questioned me or wrestled with what I was doing. But God in his great care for us does that very thing. He records for us in his word times when people really wrestled with him, uh, wrestled with what he was doing in the world. And he gives those to us so that as we read the Psalms, we sort of get inside them. And we map our own experiences onto the experiences of the psalmist. And as they do that, don't we experience that, that God teaches us how to pray. Uh, God teaches us how to, to seek him and know him and experience him in the ups and downs of life. And so today I want to consider Psalm 90 together because I think this prayer particularly guides us in how to pray. When we feel unstable and perhaps unsteady. So to that end as you saw the title of today's sermon is the source of our stability. Read with me in Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word. Of the Lord. This psalm is one of my personal favorites. And I hope as you read and reread the psalms and pray the psalms that you develop your own favorites. Because as I said, they are meant to resonate with us. And I think the way they connect with us changes as we change. So, in a sense, the psalms get better with time. And I've found that to be true of, of Psalm 90. My appreciation for it has changed as my life has changed. Um, My first eight years of marriage, my wife and I moved four times. I changed jobs four times, and we had four children. Now, that was a wonderful and blessed time. The Lord met us and led us and in many ways provided for us. It's not a time I would describe as stable. Um, Now, I'm in a very different season of life now. In the 12 years since then, I have only changed jobs one time, only moved one time, and only had two more children. So it has perhaps been a little more stable than the eight that preceded that. Maybe some of you can, can resonate with that sense of feeling unstable. I have felt that instability in very different ways now. In my extended family, there have been far more deaths recently than births. Maybe that's been true in your family. A generation that you looked for uh, stability from is now passing on, and increasingly you find the people in your own family looking to you for that kind of stability and steadiness. Perhaps you feel the sense of instability because you are living in a country where you were not born. And you find that you are glad to be here, but you are constantly navigating unfamiliar circumstances. Government processes that are unfamiliar, social norms and customs that are unfamiliar, perhaps a language that is unfamiliar. And so you're, you find that your circumstances are whispering to your heart, you're not home. Some of us experience this financially, You may be aware even now your job is at risk or your income is at risk. We experience it with our health. We show up to the doctor for a routine visit and it proves to be anything but. Our stability circumstantially can feel fragile. We can feel like nothing is quite kind of bolted down and steady as we walk through life and we may be on the verge of losing what little stability we feel. Well, whatever instability you may be tempted to feel this morning, I want you to have that in mind now as we look more closely at Psalm 90. First thing this psalm tells us is who the author is. As you know, we don't always get that in the psalms. In this case, we do. The prescript says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. If anyone in all of the Bible knew something about not feeling settled. It was Moses. If there's anybody who sort of felt like they know what it's like to live life on the road, it was Moses. Now, if you're new to your Bible, or maybe you just haven't uh, read that portion of, of it a while, let me give you a little refresher. Moses was born into slavery. In a land his people had come to in order to escape a famine. And so from the time he drew his first breath, he was in a place he didn't belong. And he was born in a time where there was a threat of infanticide. Uh, The the ruling powers were literally killing babies at the time of Moses' birth. And so his mother, in an attempt to save his life, um, sends him off from the family in a desperate attempt that he might be found and kept. And he ends up being taken in by the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so Moses grew up a foreigner in the house of the man who was enslaving his family. And as he grew up, Moses saw increasingly the burdens of his people. And the burdens of his people increasingly burdened him. And so one day, as a a younger man, but now grown up, he observes a a Hebrew that is one of his people being beaten by an Egyptian. And he's so overcome with, with anger and frustration with his circumstances that he kills the Egyptian man and hides his body, the scripture tells us, in the sand. But word got around about what had happened, and Pharaoh goes looking for him, so Scripture tells us Moses fled to a land called Midian. And so Moses went from being a foreigner to being a fugitive. And now he carries the weight of being an outcast and the weight of grievous sin. And he sojourned then in a land that was not the land of his people or the land of his birth, shepherding flocks of sheep around the wilderness. And then God came to him in the wilderness, you remember, and he called him to go back and lead the Hebrews out of their slavery in Egypt. Now, very, very long story, very, very short, he did. After confrontations and plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea, God uses Moses to deliver his people from slavery and promises to lead them to a promised land where they would be at peace. But you remember what happened. Soon after these great miraculous events of redemption and freedom, the people start to complain. And they start to rebel not only against God, but against Moses. And so God keeps them wandering in that wilderness for another 40 years until an entire generation had passed away. So Moses spent those 40 years leading God's people in camps of tents around the wilderness, waiting to get to the promised land of rest. Now, I like camping as much as the next guy, but that's a long time to live in a tent in the wilderness. And if you think about this, Moses had one destination, one goal that occupied his every waking moment for much of his adult life. That was to get God's people to God's promised place. And after years of this wandering, they are in the precipice of arriving at the thing God has been using Moses to lead them to for nearly his entire life. But just before they arrive, you remember? His anger and frustration got the best of him. And God says, as a result, Moses will not go into the one place that he had most longed for. And so, before the people cross the River Jordan into the place God prepared, Moses gets a look at it from across the bank, and then he dies. Now listen, this Moses, a man who never really had a place to call home, prays this prayer. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And so then in this prayer, he recounts what is true about God, what is true about life, and then he asks for three things to help us make it through. The first thing he says about God in this prayer is, God is our home. God is our home. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Dwelling place. Is just another way of saying home. It's the place where you dwell, place where you live. But if you think about it, dwelling in Scripture, the way the language is often used, it talks about God dwelling with us as if he's among us and in us, which of course is absolutely true. And so as the people of God are wandering around the wilderness, God says, I will be among you, I will dwell with you in the tabernacle. And then we have the promise that by the Holy Spirit, Christ is is in us and with us and dwells within us. And of course, these are wonderful truths. However, they can give us the impression at times as if we are kind of the big thing and God is the smaller thing. Now, of course, that's not true, right? But but we can, with the language, kind of get this impression that, that we're the big container and God's sort of inside us somehow. Well, Moses flips that idea on its head. He says, no, God is the big thing, and we dwell in him. He's the container, so to speak. He is the home that we live within and move within and have our being. And in other words, he is our home. Now, let's just think about what that means, that God is our home. What's a home? Homes are meant to be a place of, of refuge. It's a place that's safe. There's a a roof over our heads. There's a, a wall that protects us from the elements. There are locks on the doors that protect us from potential intruders. Some of us have far more than locks that help us accomplish that task. Homes protect us from harm. Homes are also a place of provision. It's a place where meals are prepared. There is usually food in the fridge, unless you have three teenagers like me, and then they just inhale it right out of the grocery bags, right? But it's a place of, of provision. Home is also meant to be a place of rest, where ideally with that provision, with your stomach full, and with that protection, a sense that nobody's going to get me in the night, right? You can sleep. It's a place of protection, provision, and rest. So when Moses says, God, you are our home, he's saying, God, you are those things to us. You are our protection. You are our provision and nourishment. You are our rest. So because we dwell in you, we have all we need. Now, Moses is, is saying this in a total wilderness. He has wandered in for most of his adult life. He's never had a true home on earth. And now he's looking into the promised land, a future home he has anticipated for decades that he now knows he will never enter. And in this moment, he says, Lord, you are my home. And not only my home, you are our home. You are that source of comfort and stability and rest. Now that is the connection between verse 1 and verse 2 in your Bible. Now, it might seem like Moses goes on to something completely different in verse 2, talking about how God existed before the world was created, that, that he is eternal. But that's very intentional. Homes on earth change, don't they? Homes on earth can be unstable. God never changes. Moses is saying our home with God is eternal and sure because God is eternal and sure. He is loving. His steadfast love never comes to an end. And so when God is your home, you don't have to fear that it's all going to get sort of swept out from under you. Moses' street address has changed many times, but his home has not. Because his dwelling place is with God. The fact that God exists eternally is something that the Bible tells us we all instinctively know. Romans 1 tells us that there's something about nature that just screams at us that God is real and eternal. Moses here uses the language of mountains. Sometimes we go to the mountains this time of year, or maybe you go to a place like the beach in the summer, and you stand before these uh, just incredible displays of vastness of creation. And There's something that just resonates in our souls that says God's here. And there's something in someone bigger than me who created all this, who is powerful, and who predates all this, and will postdate all this. It says we have a a sinful tendency to deny that truth in the way that we live. Actually acknowledging that you and I owe our existence to someone else is incredibly humbling. It means you don't belong to yourself. It means that uh, you are not the master of your own destiny. It means you don't actually have control. And that can be scary. And so perhaps in order to maintain a sense of our own self-importance or self-control, we pretend that God doesn't exist. But God's word is refreshingly clear and and refreshingly honest with us about the hard things in life. And we see that here. The fact is the human race is constantly turning over. And Moses contrasts that with God. It moves from generation to generation as one dies and gives way to another. He says, but God is from everlasting to everlasting. You and I do not live forever, but God does. You and I are not in control, but God is. So in the next section of the prayer, Moses contrasts God's stability with our temporality. So that's the second point, point. and it's, it's very deep. I came all the way from Gaithersburg to just tell you this thing you never heard. You ready? Point two, life is short. Life is short. Now, Moses isn't telling us this in just this sort of common knowledge, carpe diem, seize the day kind of thing. He's interpreting this truth for us theologically. The basic point of the next several verses is that God lives forever, but all people die. I'm very sorry to bust your bubble. This is a young, vibrant congregation, but give me just a minute. I'm going to bust it just for a second, okay? You cannot work out enough to live forever. Uh, you cannot eat enough organic, raw, whole, probiotic, whatever it is, the ism, it, you know, stuff you buy to eat. You can't eat enough of that to live forever. Uh, You and I can't amass enough wealth to ensure that we will live forever. We can't become intellectually enlightened enough and add enough letters to our title and get enough degrees on the wall to live forever. The truth is we all die. Now, In case that wasn't a positive enough message for you, Moses takes it one step further. He says, uh, folks, not only are you going to die, but so is everybody else. Have a great Sunday. What's for lunch? You know, there's your positive, encouraging message for today. It's sobering, but it's important, friends, that we face this reality honestly, right? Human beings can be fascinated with each other. This sounds weird when you say it, but we kind of gawk at each other sometimes, right? We go to sporting events, and we just are amazed at these incredible displays of athletic ability. Or we go to concert performances, which I love attending, but we just are amazed at these demonstrations of, of musical prowess. Our advertising companies put the most beautiful examples of our races on TV screens, and in magazine ads, and on social media. And we're amazed at at the beauty of the people that get presented to us. What Moses is helping us see is that we need to keep all of those displays of a human ability in perspective. Because the truth for every one of us is talents are here one day, and they're gone the next. But God's abilities never diminish. Never. As has been said, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can also spend a lot of time fearing people. Whether they'll come in and get in our houses and and break into our cars. We feel they might harm us. We fret about what they think of us. Uh, We fret about our reputations, what people are saying. But as far as God is concerned... Their lives pass by like the blink of an eye. And it helps us see that ultimately he's the one we should fear, not them. Then he goes on to say that the end of all of us is death. It has a 100% success rate. He says it comes like a flood. It wipes us all out indiscriminately, however strong we may think we are, both ourselves and others. But then again, Moses interprets that for us theologically. Why is it that the eternal God brings death to men? Verses 7 through 11 show us why. Because of God's wrath for sin. Death exists because sin exists. And because of sin, you and I now live in a sin-sick, broken world. Dust in verse 3 is a reference to the curse in Genesis 3.19 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. And he told them, you are dust and to dust you will return. So death is an effect of the fall. It's part of God's divine judgment. And in verse 8, he says, Moses recognizes God sees all sin. I wonder what Moses was thinking of in his own life as he prayed that. I wonder if he knew that he had hid that body in the sand, but God knew where the body was buried. You know what I mean? God knows. He sees it all, whoever we may think we've hidden it from. Again, this is stark, but it can be refreshing in its honesty. It throws a bit of a cup of cold water in the face, I think, of two of our greatest delusions that we will never die, and that we can hide our sin. So, in love, I think it's good for me to bring that to you, but I also want to bring to you this hope that we now can read this through the vantage point of the cross, right? We can recognize that Jesus came and lived the life of perfect obedience to God that you and I have not, that Moses certainly didn't. And then he died the death on the cross that our sins and Moses' sins deserved. And then he rose again from the dead in victory over sin and death and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that now through faith in him, despite all of our sin, we can be reconciled to God and we can experience newness of life. And so we don't actually have to carry around the weight of guilt of all the stuff God has seen that I think I've got hid but don't. We can bring it all out in the open before him because he knew it anyway. And not only did he know it, he made a way for me to be reconciled to him all the more. God is our home. Life is short. And knowing God's love and power makes us stable. After he goes over this fleeting nature of life, you would think Moses would be a little depressed, but he's not. Uh, After assessing that reality, Moses in this psalm does what we all should do in similar moments. He asks God for help. One author, I think, reflects on this and puts it uh, in words that are helpful. He says, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. You can sense in this prayer that as Moses has reckoned with the hard facts of life, it also sets him out seeking God's grace. And that's where the prayer leads us. It helps us to see that when you can't trust in your own righteousness or your own power, then the only way you can know true security in your life is when you trust in a righteous God who is powerful and loving. A God who is only powerful and not loving would be difficult to come to in a prayer moment like this because you would know he could act, but you wouldn't be confident that he would. And likewise, a God who is loving, but not all-powerful, you may feel like, hey, he wants to act in my best interest, but he just may not be able to. We have a God who is both powerful and loving, who has the ability to act on our behalf and has demonstrated it in Christ, and who loves us as his own children. And so in light of that reality, the power of God and the love of God, Moses makes three requests. First, he asks, help us to live wisely by understanding we won't live forever. Teach us to number our days, God, so that we would get a heart of wisdom. I love this verse, I have it up uh, uh, right over my desk. Because recognizing the brevity of life is one of the key ways to live it well. Uh, If you're familiar with it, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book in the Bible that's really all about this theme. And you might think I'm weird for this, but it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, It's given to us in the wisdom literature right alongside the Proverbs. Now the Proverbs come to us and and give these wonderful, kind of cheerful, general truths. Things like, train up your child in the way they should go, and when they grow old, they will not depart from it. And then Ecclesiastes comes in and kind of says, well, sometimes they do, you know. Ecclesiastes gives us the exception, while Proverbs gives us the rule. Now, Proverbs tends to feel a lot about life. Ecclesiastes calls us to reckon with death in the same way that Moses is. And so it tells us things like, you know what, better is a handful of quiet. Than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. It says things like: It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd much rather go to a wedding than a funeral. I'd much rather feast at a wedding reception than mourn at a wake. But what Ecclesiastes is showing us is that most of us have a good time at a wedding reception, but we don't get more wise there. Few of us have a good time at a funeral, but many of us get more wise there because we reckon with the brevity of life and we reckon with God. Moses says, Lord, show us the brevity of life so that we may gain that kind of heart. Then he says, Lord, help us to be satisfied with your love so that we are happy despite our circumstances. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Now, I don't know what your mornings are like but mine are crazy, <laughs> right? Uh, left to myself, if I'm not up early enough, I got a lot going on in the mornings. I got six kids who need to go six different directions, work obligations, phone notifications, everything's a little crazy. What Moses says here is that contrary to that kind of frenetic, frustrating morning, Lord, give us mornings where first and foremost we are satisfied in your love. We approach our whole lives differently, good days and bad, when we are confident in and satisfied by the love of God. It's not a bad idea to make the goal of your quiet time being satisfied in the love of God. Lord, make my heart happy in you because you love me is a good prayer to pray. Romans 5 eight tells us, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It says, God graciously gave us his son, how will he not also then graciously give us all things? Even if you murdered an Egyptian, because of the grace of God, the goodness of God, the power of God, you can wake up in the morning satisfied by the love of God. Lord, give us wisdom, help us be satisfied. And then third, he says, help us to see your power so we are established. Moses prays this twice. And this is what happens when we see God's work. So the other thing Moses says in his prayer he wants us to be alert to is not only the love of God, but the power of God. Because apart from the power and love of God, there is no true security. You and I do not have control of our lives. There is no amount of protection sufficient to protect you and I from all the physical harm or the emotional harm that could come to you. But knowing that you belong to an all-powerful God establishes and gives meaning to everything you do. So you might wonder, okay, Moses, these prayers that you would help us, God help us know things about you. How does that touch down on my life? I think this is how, if God is our home, if he's the big thing and we're the small thing and we live and move and have our being in him, what our house is like is really important, right? The atmosphere of the home is important. And if we know the character of God, we know the atmosphere of the home we live in and we need to know the atmosphere of the home is that God is a God of love and God is a God of power. And if that's the case, even though our lives are short, if we know we are held in the hands of that all-powerful and all-loving God, it actually establishes everything else we do. I can go home, I can go to work, I can walk through the nine to five of daily life, even though it can change on a dime, because it's actually all superintended by a loving and powerful God. And so I've got a firm ground to walk on. I've got a firm ground to talk to my neighbor on. I've got a firm ground to do spreadsheets on. I've got a firm ground to relate with my family members on this Thanksgiving. When things seem unstable, they in fact are not because God is eternal and he does not change. And he loves you and he's powerful in your life. So friend, let me just then come back and ask you again, where does your heart find a home? Where do you turn for a sense of security? Is there a relationship in your life where you've just said, man, as long as this is good, I'm good, right? As long as me and my spouse are good, me and my kids are good, me and mom and dad are good, then, then I'm good. Maybe it's, it's your work. And you would just say, hey, everything else in life can be kind of crazy. but As long as i got my job, as long as there's income coming in, I'm good. In some cases, it may be an actual house. But I just want to remind you, if your security rests in anything on earth, friend, it is not a matter of if but when it will let you down. And there is nothing, friend, that you and I can do to change that. But what the psalmist says you can do is come to the one who did create all this. And come to the one who is in control and trust him to be your shelter. Trust him to be your home. I think Jesus picks up on that theme as he gathers his disciples in John 14. And he actually is telling them that he is about to leave. That he's not going to physically be present with them anymore. And his disciples are troubled by that. You could say they're, they're destabilized by that information. And so Jesus, when he wants to bring them comfort, he says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And we not only have home in God, this side of heaven, but we also have an eternal home that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, awaiting you. And Jesus is going to make sure you get there. So friend, get rid of this false idea that you actually have control of your life. Because you don't. And neither do I, and that's okay. What I do have, and what I desperately hope you have, is confidence that I am securely held in the power and love of an almighty, eternal God who will never change. Let me pray that for you. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. A refuge in the stormy blast and our eternal home. As we remember your power and love, help us. Help New Covenant Baptist Church to be like that tree planted by streams of living water, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.